Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Educational Freedom um, here, and I'm very pleased today to be hosting a forum uh, about uh, Charles Murray's new book, Real Education, Four Simple Truths for Bringing America's Schools Back to Reality. You can see I've, I've read it closely because I've tabbed it. Um, there's, a, there's a prominent man in conservative education circles who recently wrote an autobiography uh, with the title of Troublemaker. Well, if I didn't know any better, I'd say it had been a book written about Charles Murray, who agree or disagree with what he's written in such books as the bell curve, or now real education, there's no question that he has a tendency to stir up some trouble. Uh, one might even call him a true maverick, uh, although it's not an association I want to go into uh, right now. Um, Charles Murray is the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute uh, and was a resident fellow at AEI before that. He has worked and done research in several foreign countries, was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute from 1982 to 1990, uh, and was at the American Institute for Research uh, from 1974 to 1981. Uh, he is the author of 10 books, including such influential titles as Losing Ground, American Social Policy, 1950 to 1980, the aforementioned Bell Curve, uh, and his latest work for which we're gathered. Uh, he holds a Ph.D. in political science from MIT. Uh, as pleased as I am to have uh, Mr. Murray with us, I am equally happy to have Christopher Nelson joining us today to respond to Murray's book. Uh, Mr. Nelson has joined us before to discuss higher education. Um, and as president and a graduate of the Great Book School, St. John's College in Annapolis, he is much better equipped to bring Thucydides or, say, Virgil, uh, to the arguments that we have over higher education than certainly I am. Uh, Mr. Nelson, after practicing law in Chicago for 18 years uh, and then taking over the presidency of St. John's, has been very involved in higher education uh, policy issues, especially challenges facing liberal arts colleges. Among other things, he is the past chair uh, and founding member of the Annapolis Group, a consortium of over 120 of the nation's leading liberal arts colleges. He's served in numerous capacities with the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities and has lectured on everything from Homer to John Henry Cardinal Newman. Mr. Nelson holds a JD from the University of Utah College of Law. Uh, now, I just want to say one thing that will hopefully set your minds at ease before I hand the podium over to Mr. Murray. Uh, on page 33 of his book, um, he mentions uh, and assures readers that the fact that they are reading his book means that they are of above-average intelligence. By extension, that means all of you who have come here are probably of above-average intelligence and should understand everything that's discussed. The only possibility is that you wandered in here by accident then clearly you're not of above average intelligence and should head back out the door. <laughs> and with that, I give you Charles Murray. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. I, I, I guess I should fess up, though, that I immediately say that the reason I know you're above average intelligence is not because this book is especially hard, but because only people with those peculiar sets of interests end up reading books like this. And it's, I'm afraid, not so much a compliment as it is an observation about uh, the self-selection that goes into reading my stuff. Uh, this book came about because of uh, a set of articles in the Wall Street Journal 
uh, which in turn were prompted when I was asked by the editor of the op-ed page if I had anything I wanted to say. And what I really wanted to do was to bash No Child Left Behind, which in my view is uh, the work of the devil. And uh, it, was a, it was a bipartisan work of the devil, but it's the work of the devil. And in the course of, of uh, working on those op-eds, I realized I had a much deeper problem with American education. And it kind of spilled out of me. I, I have never – I laid out the framework that became the three op-eds and then became the book basically in a very intense hour and a half uh, one evening. But, but the, the essence of my problem was that the educational system in the United States is living a lie. It is living a lie in the sense that it tries to pretend uh, that all kids can pretty much be anything they want to be if only the schools do their job. Now, nobody really truly believes that. Uh, I mean, if you push kid, if you push people to the wall, uh, and, and particularly if you get them to talk about their own children, uh, I, th- I think they will readily, readily acknowledge that, well, to be a, a theoretical physicist requires intellectual capabilities that are not necessarily within everyone's grasp. And if you push them harder than that, I think they will acknowledge the ways in which children really do differ in their profiles of abilities. But we operate the schools as if it were true that all children can do just about anything if the schools do their job. And if you doubt that, try to think of the last time that you saw a newspaper article or a television uh, feature about No Child Left Behind, which used the low intellectual ability of some children as a reason why kids don't pass the proficiency standard that they set. I doubt if you can think of a single example, because that sort of thing is just not said. The problem is that this does a disservice to everybody because the abilities that children bring first are of a varied set. So you have not just the kind of ability that lets you pass a proficiency examination in mathematics for No Child Left Behind. You have verbal abilities. You have uh, well, you have all of Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences. They really are different kinds of abilities that should be tapped when you're doing a proper educational system, and they will be different for different kinds of kids. Uh, The four simple truths, uh, which are part of the subtitle of the book, go as follows. Uh, The first is that ability varies. I said they were simple. The second one is half of the children are below average. That one also is really, really simple. And and, uh, I have gotten... Lots of interesting observations about that statement, by the way, where people have first gotten mad at me uh, 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 for saying it until it finally sinks in. The third simple truth is too many people are going to college, and the fourth is that the future of the nation depends on how we educate the academically gifted. Because we have Mr. Nelson here, I'm going to spend most of my time on the last two because uh, I'm delighted that he's going to be commenting on the book. There are lots of things that uh, we can discuss, I think, both uh, in agreement and disagreement, and I want to focus on those. Uh, The basic message of the first two involve elementary and secondary education, and uh, they are a plea uh, in large part to stop uh, first uh, trying to push everybody onto an academic track which I think is a very big mistake. Second, stop ignoring the fact that that, uh, kids do have limits. And instead, don't give up on kids, but simply shape the education they get with that in mind. But let me turn to too many people are going to college. 
and the future of the nation depends on how we educate the academically gifted. I am not against post-secondary education. On the contrary, I think just about everybody needs post-secondary education. The idea that it needs to consist of four years of residence at a brick-and-mortar institution uh, seems to me to be foolish on a number of levels. My gripe is not with a college education. My gripe is with the piece of paper called a BA and the role that this has taken on in American life. Let us count the ways. Uh, First, uh, four years. Very few vocational specialties require four years of coursework, and that includes brain surgery. That includes uh, uh, being an attorney. Uh, To become competent in any uh, profession requires more than four years or often requires more than four years, but it's not coursework that's doing it. And an awful lot of kids want out of college to learn how to make a living at something they have an interest in. We will come back to the issue of liberal education in a moment, but I want simply to put that out front. You have a whole lot of 18-year-olds who are very reasonably concerned about making a living that is a good living and reasonably want to find out how to do something that they enjoy and that the idea that they must acquire the B.A., in the process of doing this, uh, is wrong. It's fine for the upper middle class, people who have enough money and time to do this. Lots of kids don't. Let me, th- let me also add into this uh, indictment another problem. Because we have made the BA the emblem of educational success in this country, we automatically are saying that most young people cannot achieve this desired goal. And this gets to the issue of the the intellectual demands of of genuine college-level material. Now, we've got two separate issues we've got going on here. We've got, we've got uh, young people who can, who can handle the demands of college-level material, but shouldn't be required to spend four years at a residential college to do it. We also have the large number who can't handle traditional college-level material. And let me be more explicit about that. The College Board uh, did a study recently in which it tried to estimate uh, what SAT score is associated with college readiness. And they defined college readiness as a 2.7 grade average uh, uh, during the freshman year. They had a sample of 41 colleges uh, in their study, which ranged from solid state universities, but not spectacular ones, up through the most elite colleges. So we are talking about colleges that that are the real thing in terms of uh, today's universities. Uh, And the requirement of the the benchmark SAT score that's associated with the 65% probability of having a 2.7 grade average, this is not a very severe requirement. The SAT score required for that was one that only about 10% of 18-year-olds would get if all 18-year-olds took the SAT, 10%. Now, since you've got 28% of all adults who have BAs, obviously you can get through to a BA uh, without being in that top 10%, but that is the the threshold for dealing with that material. In the book, I try to make that point. for readers who I think may have forgotten what a real college is like. 
And I do that by putting down paragraphs from page 400, I just chose that page arbitrarily, uh, of a number of standard textbooks. And just putting them there on the book sort of lets you know, you know what, you have to have really good verbal skills to be able to comprehend the texts that you have to read to do a real college education. So you have a whole lot of pe- you have a whole lot of people who are told from uh, birth that you aren't a success in life unless you get a BA, and there is no way on God's green earth that a whole lot of those kids can get a genuine BA in a genuine subject at a genuine university. And so you have all kinds of changes in the way we define an undergraduate education to try to get around that to expand the pool of people who get it, uh, and we we go through all of these hoops that are not necessary in order for these kids to learn what they want to learn to get an education. Another problem I have with the BA and with regard to uh, its current use is it no longer means anything if it's not in a subject like engineering or biochemistry. You can be fairly confident if somebody has a BA or BS actually in engineering, they know a fair amount of engineering. Tell me what it means if you are an employer and you want to have people come in at entry-level positions as, as white-collar workers, and the applicant tells you that uh, she has a BA in sociology. You don't know anything, except that she has a certain degree of perseverance and a cer- certain degree of intelligence. You know nothing about anything that she brings to the job that makes her a good employee. And yet, what are you doing? You are requiring the BA as a minimum requirement for getting your foot in the door in the job interview when the, when the piece of paper itself tells you nothing. That's the reason why in the book I make a, um, a strong plea for certification as a way of undermining the importance of the piece of paper called a BA. Certification meaning something like the CPA exam. The CPA exam is one which is nationally recognized. Employers know about it. And if you walk in the door with a high score in the CPA exam, you, in some sense, have leveled the playing field because where you learned that information and whether it took you four years is suddenly no longer so important. You have a chance of getting that job competing with a graduate from a well-known university if your CPA exam score is a lot higher. That's the kind of thing I want for all young people in a wide variety of fields. I want them to have something they can take to an employer that tells the employer what they know, not where they learned it or how long it took them. So here I have been uh, denigrating the BA, and here we have Mr. Nelson, who is the head of a college that teaches uh, a classical liberal education uh, uh, unparalleled anywhere else in the country. Am I saying that this classical education that he is teaching his students at St. John's is uh, a waste of time and they ought to be taking vocational courses instead? No, I am not. I am a big fan of liberal education, classically understood. I was saying to Mr. Nelson before we came out here, I tried to get each of my four children to consider St. John's, and I did not succeed in any of those four cases, but I really wanted them to go to St. John's. So, so what's going on here? And that gets to the point I made, the last of the four simple truths, uh, which is the future of the nation depends on how we educate the academically gifted. That simple truth is not, let me emphasize, a statement that we ought to identify the most able youths and educate them to become our leaders. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the country is run by an elite. 
that a relatively small proportion of the population which holds positions in this country, whether they are highly visible ones like syndicated columnists or whether they are uh, heads of corporations or whether they are notably successful attorneys in Cleveland or notably successful uh, small business owners in Des Moines. You have a relatively small portion of the population that has a huge influence on the state of our culture and of our economy and of our political institutions. Those people are drawn almost exclusively from those in the top 10% of uh, measured IQ. That is an empirical statement. It's not an ideological one. That just happens to be the case. They almost all go to college. We need to educate them in ways that give them the best possible chance of becoming wise as well as professionally proficient. And that kind of education comes from a rigorous classical liberal education. Let me, however, expand that statement. It is not just the top 10% in uh, intelligence who ought to get a classical liberal education and have its advantages. All children should be exposed to as much of a classical liberal education as they can absorb. But don't wait for college to do that. In K-12, a great deal of the skeleton of a liberal education can be taught. A skeleton which has kids reading a lot of good literature, which has them learning a lot of history, which has them learning about some of the important ethical and philosophical issues, which, which, which provides all children with exposure to great, great works of all kinds. We could do that. We have a, a curricula out there that are packaged and ready to go, E.D. Hirsch's core knowledge curriculum being one of the best. Let's do that for everybody in K-12. to But when you come to college, you have a problem, which is to acquire a classical liberal education, not just the skeleton. You have to take on the tough stuff. If you have taken the core knowledge curriculum in K-12, you will come out of high school knowing, for example, that John Stuart Mill was a famous philosopher of the 19th century, associated with something called utilitarianism, and you will know that he wrote a book called On Liberty that is a famous defense of personal freedom. If you're going to be in college, you've got to be able to read On Liberty. Uh, in the book, I, I put the first sentence of On Liberty in the book just to give people a sense of not everybody is going to be able to deal with this. I do not put the last sentence of On Liberty in there because it is 126 words long. Uh, it is in college that you can deal with the classics. It is in college that you can introduce the kind of rigor in logical uh, uh, thinking, the kind of rigor in, uh, in verbal expression, the kind of rigor in thinking about issues of the good and of virtue that go into encouraging wisdom. And the purpose of this um, is not just to add to the knowledge that young people have, it is also to take those who have recently been skipping from kindergarten through graduate school, if they are in the humanities and social sciences, without being tested severely. And it is a way of holding their feet to the fire and teaching them that they aren't as smart as they think they are. That I consider to be a great good for the same reason that uh, one of Lyndon Johnson's press secretaries once observed that no one should be allowed to work in the West Wing of the White House unless they had suffered a major disappointment in life. I think people should not be allowed to rise to positions of great influence in our culture 
without having a strong visceral sense that they aren't always as smart as they once thought they were. So those are the four simple truths. Focusing uh, on this, this, this presentation on those issues that are involved in going to college. And I look forward to hearing uh, Mr. Nelson engage in, in all of the different issues that this raises. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. Murray, and uh, thank you for the invitation to join you today. I confess to uh, having uh, approached Mr. Murray's new book with a little ambivalence, and it's not because I disagreed with him on No Child Left Behind or on core knowledge curriculum or on the place of liberal education in uh, K-12 to through uh, college. I find myself in much agreement with that. But I nonetheless imagined that I might be some kind of educational romantic of the kind he described early in his book and wondered whether a certain kind of educational romanticism uh, might provide not an unkindly lie toward our young people, uh, but a noble spur to a better life for the nation's young. Uh, but this book uh, strikes me as both provocative and compelling in its description of the ills of and cures for our so-called educational system. I say so-called because we don't have a single educational system in this country, though the threats and attempts to create one are certainly out there and are devoutly to be resisted. Uh, Mr. Murray and I agree on this, I think. I'm also not a statistician, a social scientist. I don't see that I can contribute very much to the findings of uh, Mr. Murray on this in his early chapters. I'm pretty much an amateur diagnostician, but I am a citizen of this great country and thought I might approach the question of education from a perspective that I imagine to be important in all public policy discussions. What kind of education is necessary to preserve our liberal democracy? How should we educate our citizens to be fit for the freedom they ought to enjoy in our democratic republic? So let me begin by trying to describe what I mean by education for freedom. And then I want to say a few words about how difficult this is to accomplish in a democratic republic and how important it is for us to succeed. What might follow from this analysis? Let me first distinguish freedom from license to do what we please, and then to distinguish the byproducts of our democratic freedoms from the underlying cause. By byproducts, I mean what we called, until only a few weeks ago, <laughs> our relatively free market economy and competitive, <laughs> and competitive strength in the global marketplace. First, freedom and license. Uh, license is when we give ourselves permission to do whatever we like with whatever comes our way. It resembles anarchy more than self-government. When we exercise freedom without thought or purpose, we're most vulnerable to being captured or enslaved by the things we choose to experience. Most of us know what it means to be slaves to food or drink or narcotics, even slaves to popular opinion or the will of our friends and family. We become slave, slaves to our prejudices, which our opinions uh, held without reason. We usually subject ourselves to these things quite willfully and thoughtlessly. How do we avoid becoming slaves to all the things that press upon us day in and day out? How could we learn to take charge of the lives that ought to belong to us? We need an education in the arts of freedom, which we call the liberal arts, to enable us to choose from among the necessary and the extraneous, from among the good and the bad, 
We're not looking for freedom from discipline, but for discipline itself in order to form habits of thought that will help us distinguish ends from means and good ends from bad ones, habits that will help us choose the lives we ought to lead because they belong to us. You've all heard reports telling us how few liberal artists are graduating from our colleges today, our high schools too for that matter, but strictly speaking this cannot be so, and I believe I'm paraphrasing Robert Maynard Hutchins in saying that all of us are liberal artists, whether, we, whether or not we attend college. And this is because all human beings exercise their reason. The only question open to them is whether they'll exercise their reason poorly or well, whether they'll be poor liberal artists or good ones. Our project in the nation's schools thus ought to be how best to help our students acquire the many arts uh, or skills needed to exercise their reason well. And I share Mr. Murray's view that more of this should be done in the K-12 years and that the opportunity should be open to all to pursue this through college. Let me turn for a moment from the problem of slavery uh, and license to a problem with the byproducts of freedom. My wife and I have five children who completed their undergraduate education. We thus have some experience with the prospective student campus tour. The chairman of a business department of a small liberal arts college in the Middle West had this to say to one of our sons. My job is to make you into the best product that can be sold on the market. You are raw material, and I'm the producer, and together we must make a product that we can go out and sell. I want to get you the best price for your mind and body when you graduate from here in competition with all the other products from all of the other colleges. You'd think he was selling pork bellies, not education. Well, we didn't buy. Of course, if you want to be treated like a commodity, you can find schools that will do this to you. And if you think you're buying a commodity when you're paying tuition, you might want to consider spending your money on something else because education is not a commodity and you're not a consumer. Learning is something entirely different from shopping and consuming. Learning actually requires a little effort on the student's part. It cannot be bottled, sold, and swallowed. It demands far more from the would-be learner, something to make learning one's own. But what's wrong with an education that's useful enough to ensure that you get a good job upon graduation so that you can become a productive member of society? In a certain sense, nothing at all. More people should have this. Almost all of us need to work in order to live. But life is more than about earning a living. One ought to also be concerned with making a life worth living. So the problem with this kind of education is that it's just not enough. A freeing education, a liberal education, is one in which the student does the work, not the teacher, in which the student isn't reshaped by some teacher but is doing the reshaping herself or himself. Our best schools and liberal arts colleges work hard to provide students with tools for their own learning and with opportunities to practice using those tools over and over. These are mostly the tools of inquiry and investigation, though some memorization and rote learning will be required to make the best use of these tools. A byproduct of this education is the ability to make one's way in the world, to earn a living and support a family. The content of the curriculum matters, and not just for the good it contains, but because great writing, wonderful original works, exciting experiments, all fuel the desire to learn. Without this desire, without a love of learning, 
very little learning will take place. Our schools need to have a conviction that some things are better, more fundamental, more worthy of study than others. And we ought to offer these as a kind of banquet for our students to plunder and afterwards make something distinctive that belongs to the students alone. We often call this the cultivation of the mind and intellect, but it's also the cultivation of independence. Now, I don't believe it's easy to cultivate such independence of mind in a democratic society. The United States, as an example, is built upon a respect for the individual and a trust that its citizens are capable of self-government. Surely, then, the protection of a democracy and freedom of its citizens requires that those citizens uh, have an education both in the traditions of the democratic republic and in the arts of freedom. Yet the traditions of a nation, its customs, its idols, its laws, will frequently be at odds with the very things that encourage the autonomy of the individual citizens, those arts that allow us to think for ourselves and to question the city fathers, popular opinion, and social custom. One might say that a democracy of any size can only work well if its citizens are capable of holding on to the tension between the needs of an ordered society on the one hand and the needs of a free people on the other. America may be the best hope of a home for a free individual, but in any well-ordered society or happy society, there'll inevitably be a tendency of the people to fall asleep, to become comfortable with their prosperity, to follow without much reflection the will of the many or the lead of their elected officials, and to ignore, resent, or repress individual voices that would challenge custom, question the status quo, or shake the comfort of its citizens. And this tendency to sleep is a form of decay or corruption in a democratic society, which can only be countered by the wakeful vigilance of its citizens and their persistent efforts to find ways of renewing the nation's spirit, recalling it to its purpose of cultivating a free citizenry. We need to be alert to the signs of corruption and open to correction. We need to be able to think about what is right and wrong, not just what is comfortable or expedient, to think about building a better tomorrow not just protecting our inheritance. The liberally educated man or woman should be the spur to such vigilance, keeping us from the smug self-satisfaction that comes from sleeping through life without examining who we are and what we ought to become. We should be kept awake to the need for this self-examination, even if we can't resolve the questions that such examination requires us to ask. We should learn to ask questions that will reduce us to a state of perplexity so that we may wonder at our ignorance and search for a better understanding. These questions and that perplexity are the conditions for a liberal education. They're the groundwork for the humility of intellect that Mr. Murray would rightly have our nation's leaders acquire. To learn well and make a lesson one's own, we also need to have something at stake. That is, it must make a difference to us how we answer the questions we ask. In this country, we each have a stake in the survival and strength of our liberal democracy, a stake many believe is worth dying for, certainly a stake worth investing in by providing all of our citizens with the opportunity to, un to undertake an education that will free them to become responsible thinking adults. So what has been my point in all of that argument? 
I think it's that I want us all to appreciate how important it is to every American that a substantial portion of our population receive an education fit for the freedom we enjoy. We should do everything we can to expand uh, and, and encourage the opportunities for more of our nation's school children and college graduates alike to obtain the best form of such a liberal education according to the, the abilities of each. We should have more trust than we do in the power of the intellect of each child to acquire, to a greater or lesser degree, an education fit for freedom. Mr. Murray's book gives us many examples of ways to improve upon the learning that is going on in our schools. Of course, ability varies, and half the children are below average. Indeed, we should not set the college degree as a gold standard for success in life. We should teach people how better to make a living and to respect the work of the craftsmen and the technicians among us. We should not stigmatize those Mr. Murray calls the forgotten half, but neither should we abandon our efforts to provide each of our citizens with an opportunity to have the education that is required to keep us uh, watchful, wakeful protectors of our personal and political freedoms. I'd love to see us more uh, doing more of that in our schools, uh, elementary, secondary, and collegiate, for the gifted and for the rest of us. I don't know how many students should be going to college, but I'd hate to implement any model that would shut down learning opportunities of any kind at too early a time in life. I have too many stories to tell of young people who took a long time to find themselves, their vocations, and the things that they love to study and are happy to pursue. Whatever we do to encourage the pursuit of a large variety of interests in our schools, we should never forget that each of our students grows at a different rate, takes a different path to find themselves along the way. Mr. Murray has said that in an ideal world, everyone would have a liberal education. I cannot help but agree whether this education is at work in K-12 or at the collegiate level. Believing this, I also simply can't abandon the effort to help us realize this ideal, even as I concur that we ought to respect those who find fulfillment and happiness in so many other endeavors. So I suppose that this is my version of a kind of educational romanticism, and I wonder whether it's really very different uh, from Mr. Murray's vision. Thank you. I want to thank uh, both Mr. Murray and Mr. Nelson again for being here and for, for their comments and discussion. Uh, we're now going to go into the, the question and answer um, period. I, I just want to set a few ground rules. It's called question and answer. Typically, the way that's supposed to work is questions come from you and then answers from here. <laughs> the, uh, often people think question and answer means I'll ask a question, I'll give my own answer. So we just want questions, and I'm going to try and be very strict about that. Um, also, when, when you raise your hand, I'll, I'll call on you, and please wait for the microphone to come and then identify yourself. Um, but as the moderator, it's my prerogative to ask the first question, so you're going to have to wait till I get my question out of the way, and I promise I won't break my own rules by answering it. Um, and so uh, the question is for both of you. Um, if we want everyone to be active, knowledgeable citizens of the country, don't we need everyone to have a strong liberal arts basis or, or foundation? And shouldn't we be looking for people who go to college, even if they go into something like computer science and accounting, who I think in the book, uh, Mr. Murray, you suggest, 
don't need the full liberal arts treatment. Don't we need them to be equipped to be active leaders and citizens as much as someone who goes planning to become a lawyer or, or a businessman? And if, if that's the case, how do we ensure that we get this widespread, strong foundation of liberal arts knowledge and training throughout society? Uh, I'll, I'll take it on first. Um, I take it we are not in favor of statist solutions which say that in order to be an accredited college, you must uh, take uh, uh, four courses in philosophy and six courses in uh, classical literature and so forth. We don't want to go that route. Uh, I doubt if anybody in this room does. It wouldn't work anyway. Uh, what about let's, – let's take the, the, the youngster who is 18 years old and wants to become uh, – go into business – wants to learn about marketing, does not at that point have any interest in his life in, in reading Plato or Aristotle. Um, how, how is it that we are to force him to get that liberal education? Well, the, what we say now is, ah, well, we have these distribution requirements in college, and so he comes in to take marketing, but he has to take these other, these other requirements. If colleges really did that, I would be all in favor of them doing that. The distribution requirements that colleges really have mean that instead of studying, uh, let us say, the history of the epic poem from Homer to Milton, you have the option of studying the... Uh, history of the epic film from Ben-Hur to Lord of the Rings. And, you know, they take the Ben-Hur to Lord of the Rings uh, as, as their option. We, are, we, we, do, we ca are not giving kids who are in the current college system that liberal education. I can see no way beyond encouraging them in K-12 to uh, to force them to do it. And so then the question arises, is it appropriate to say to kids in, uh, that this BA is the thing you've got to get and you've got to spend four years in a residential facility to do it. So do as much as we can in K-12, provide, uh, provide as much of a liberal education as we can there to everyone. After that, I'm all in favor of having the most attractive possible courses that lure kids into taking this stuff, but let's stop structuring our educational system at the college level as if we were providing a liberal education with the BA when we actually aren't. I'm, I guess I'm being very pragmatic there. Yeah, well, the, the question assumes, I guess, most of the argument that I was making. Um, but then this is where the rubber hits the road. I've talked about content matter, mattering. Uh, but it also matters how one is brought into learning. Uh, let me just tell you a story. I have, a, I have five children, so two are below average <laughs> And uh, <laughs> uh, one who was well below average um, wanted to be an auto mechanic or a set designer, wanted to use his hands. Uh, and he has a, uh, an uncle who's a mechanic. So uh, he was working on my wife's 30-year-old VW or something without a floorboard in it and trying to figure out why the window wipers wouldn't work. Uh, his uncle Kenny uh, said to him, uh, well, uh, how would you go about solving this? And he says, well, they don't have any manuals that go back that far. And, and his uncle nodded and said, yes, that's right. So what would you do? And he says, well, that's why I asked you. And Ken said, no, let's see if we can figure this one out together. So he said, where is the, where is the wiper hooked up? And uh, my son Gunner said, well, I don't know. He said, well, why don't you see if you can figure that out? So he opened up the hood and, sure enough, could figure out there was a hose coming from the window shield wiper. And, uh, 
And she said, okay, I've got it. And he says, well, where does it go? So they followed this windshield, this hose, uh, back to the back of the thing. And Gunner opens up the bottom, uh, because you can walk through the bottom of the car since there's no floor on it. And uh, lo and behold, the wiper is hooked up to the spare tire. (laughs) And the spare tire was flat. (laughs) No pressure for the windshield wiper. Gunner quickly... Uh, pumped up that tire, and lo and behold, the windshield wiper worked. That is a kind of liberal education, and this is what I mean by that, that it's it's an education in freedom. He didn't have a manual. He didn't have an instruction. He didn't have to learn a way that he was told. He had to find it out. Now, somebody was there to help guide him and lead him, or he probably wouldn't have gotten there. But the next time, he'll be more willing to take that step. If we do more of that kind of thing in our schools where we help students find uh, an education for themselves, they're going to find how exciting it is to do original work of their own and to read original things. There's nothing more boring in my mind than a textbook. Uh, we won't read them at St. John's, uh, and I don't blame people for, for falling asleep in lower schools. Uh, there's nothing more exciting than discovering the challenge of reading something original and I have been surprised constantly at all levels of education, how well the young and the below average respond when given a really uh, alive, challenging piece of literature or art or music uh, or uh, scientific experiment. So I, I, I think it's going to take a lot of work in recognizing what it might mean to help bring learning alive. And I don't know how to do that. I'm not all for statism either, but I am for having models of this all over the all over the country, and encouraging people more in this kind of uh, education. Okay. Uh, Man right here had his hand up first. My name is Steve Hank, and I'm not really affiliated with anything. (laughs) I'm just interested. Uh, I want to address this question, I think, mainly to Mr. Nelson, but also um, Dr. Murray. Um, uh, We have a system of college education that is built around college degrees and essentially when you go to a college you could choose the college you could choose the degree but after that it's it's the service provider who starts dictating to the to the customer what what courses he can take and no other i don't know of anything else in society i walk into a hardware store and I say, I want to, uh, the, these tools. I, the guy doesn't say, I'm not going to sell to you unless you take, unless you buy this particular brand. This is the only thing I know in society where the supplier dictates to the customer. And I wanted to say, I disagree with your characterization that, that he's just as much of a customer for services as anything else. I don't know how you separate this out. And, but my question is to, is, why do you think this degree uh, setup is, is necessary, and why isn't it a violation of every of every, just every individual? Why shouldn't he pick out what courses he needs that will get him the type of training or the type of education he wants? Well, in fact, I think in this country now, any student can find any college any number of colleges that will do just what you're saying. That is that you can go to a school and pick and choose your own courses. You can choose to go to one college and not to another. If one comes to St. John's, they know that they're choosing in advance that they'll have to take a four-year all-required cur- curriculum in arts and sciences and literature and so on. But, uh, but the people don't have to choose that. 
they can choose another uh, college, and they can have an experience at St. John's and decides that it's not for them or that they found the thing they truly love and would like to uh, experience in greater, uh, in greater detail and can go somewhere else. So I think that that choice and that opportunity is a very healthy thing in the country, and I wouldn't um, belittle the missions of 5,000 other colleges that may have something to say on that. But let me speak to the question of consumer and, and product for just a sec. Um, I agree that a person coming to a college is paying at least for an experience, if not for a product. Uh, I don't think of education as a product because I really don't think it can be bought. You can't give it to somebody the way you can the nuts and bolts on the counter. But you are paying. You're paying for some services. You expect people to show up in the classroom, the teachers to show up. You expect to have services if it's a residential place, a residential community that would uh, afford an opportunity to live there and so on. Uh, and you're paying for a kind of experience, an opportunity to learn. And I think that each of us owes a duty to our students and their parents to live up exactly to what we have promised, if not better than that. Go on to the next one. Okay, well, let's head over to this side. Uh, well, I, I have one thing to, to say that um, I don't think you are going to like to hear. Uh, I went to co- Harvard uh, back in 1961. Colleges have very loose distribution requirements, very loose. You know, what you have to take even then was very small. I made really idiotic decisions. I was 18 years old. And um, it wasn't that I was trying to take easy courses, but I ended up taking the history of Sino-Russian relations from 1450 to 1680 and not taking a basic survey course in, in European history from the Renaissance to World War I. And I should have taken that survey course. <laughs> there were a whole bunch of courses that I should have taken. And the reason I should have taken them was that I was, I was missing out on a basic framework for understanding Western civilization and philosophy and the rest of it. And so my point to you, I guess what I'm saying to you is, consumers should be able to buy whatever they want um, uh, when they're going out into the marketplace to buy a product. But when you're talking about the education of the young, there are indeed some times when the grown-ups know better than 18-year-olds what constitutes a good education. Absolutely. We'll head over to this corner here. Uh, Mark Lerner, uh, two negative consequences of this idea that everyone has to go to college are these colleges that are really a, just a continuation of high school. They're really not uh, challenging. And this tuition that keeps going up through the roof. How can we reverse those two trends? Yeah, uh, now you've touched on things that drive me nuts um, uh, because since we've set up the B.A., as this goal, then what happens to the provision of the thing that will lead to that piece of paper? It's distorted in whatever ways are necessary to make it happen. But by retaining the four years, you've got these costs built into the brick-and-mortar institution. And that's why certification, it seems to me, is a movement that has a future. Uh, I gave the example of the CPA in my remarks. The, the potential for expanding certification way beyond that is out there not through laws, but think of the people who have an active interest in wanting to substitute certification for degrees. You have the online um, uh, and community college industries, which are large and growing. They know they can't compete in prestige with the uh, brick-and-mortar colleges. They would like to see the 
BA undermined. You have all the students who don't want a BA and don't have the money to spend for it. They really want that. And employers are realizing increasingly the BA is a terrible source of information. It is such a noisy signal. There's so little content to it. They need good evidence of what uh, the kids know. And so I think that there, I think there is real potential out there, and not only potential, but I think in the natural course of events it will happen, that the BA is going to be undermined by evidence of what the kids know. And uh, once that happens... All sorts of the distortions in the current system will go away because right now you've got community colleges that are acting as a continuation of high school, and they're doing that because the kids still say to themselves, I've somehow got to get from this community college into a four-year college and get my B.A. If, if that goes away, suddenly community colleges can be functioning as, as teaching vocational courses that the kids, the kids want. This is one time when I think there is really a potential for positive change out there. I don't uh, quarrel with the notion that there are so many forces at work out there uh, pushing this, you know, for-profit uh, organizations, uh, Internet, uh, online courses, that sort of thing, that colleges and universities are going to have to adapt and accept that. And it will mean, I think, a change in the whole pricing structure. On the other hand, when you look at the cost of education, if you're talking about the kind of cost at a four-year um, residential liberal arts college, which is trying to do the kind of thing that Mr. Murray has talked about, but you know, 10, 20 percent of the country uh, uh, ought to be uh, undertaking, that cost far exceeds the, the tuition. Uh, most of us are subsidizing that cost of that education, even for the full-pay student, with uh, draws from our endowments, with gifts from our alumni and our friends, with earnings from subsidiary operations. Uh, it is very expensive to teach young people because it takes a well-educated, expensively educated life of a human being, time and energy to educate another human being. It's not something that is easily, um, uh, in, that, in a liberal education, it's not something that uh, is easily made cost-effective by technology, although I think that many other things are. Many other kinds of credentialing can be uh, made less expensive by the use of technology. Okay, next. Uh, in the back there, front row, back section. Uh, you, you said something I thought was intriguing about uh, not w waiting for college for a liberal education, and um, it got me to thinking a little bit, I mean, how this is done, or uh, what, the question I want to ask is, how is it being done? How could it be done better? Uh, you know, is this um, being um, done better in uh, public school, junior, middle school, high school curriculums better than it used to be? Uh, <coughs> You know, I'm, I'm old enough to know that a lot of these younger kids uh, don't learn a lot of the subjects I did in public school. Uh, how about the Internet? You know, it seems to me the Internet uh, is a real phenomenon that gets people on the learning curve uh, to their very capacities and helps expand it. Uh, the question is, how is this being done? Uh, uh, how could it be done better, the idea of not waiting uh for college, for a liberal education, especially if you can't afford to go to college or send your kids to college. Well, the, this, is, this is a case where I, I used E.D. Hirsch's core curriculum, uh, core knowledge curriculum, as an example. And just to elaborate on this, for example, E.D. Hirsch is the man who wrote uh, uh, Cultural Literacy back in, that's not the full title, a book called, uh, about cultural literacy back in the 1980s. Subsequently, he and his colleagues 
have have developed an integrated curriculum which includes really solid stuff in history and literature and science uh, and and art and music. And you can you can look at, at the descriptions of it. I have the description of the third grade curriculum in my book, but you can go online and look at the rest of it. It is just a beautifully designed uh, a course, which if you did that from K through 8, which is the years that they propose it, you'd know a lot of the basics, the basics that go into a liberal education. The schools today, I think there are, what, maybe a couple of hundred schools in the entire country that use that curriculum. Uh, we sent our children to the public schools of Frederick County. The teachers were okay. The school buildings were okay. The environment in the school was okay. The curriculum was awful. They did a fairly good job of teaching math and reading, but when it came to history and science and literature, it was this progressive pablum uh, that, uh, that teaches them nothing. And and so it's it's a case we have we have a solution. We have a way to teach kids this. The educational establishment uh thinks the core knowledge curriculum is antediluvian. It is just teaching kids boring facts as opposed to giving them experiential learning. And how you turn that around I do not know uh in the public schools because uh, whereas parents aren't crazy about this curriculum, it seems to have a grip on all the educational bureaucrats. I, I agree entirely. I think it's a wonderful curriculum. And the good news is that the Core Knowledge Foundation actually gives grants to colleges around the country to help support teacher programs so the teachers who want to teach in the Core Knowledge curriculum can do so. Scheimer College is doing that in Chicago, one, another kind of great books school there. Um, there's also the International Baccalaureate Program, which is seeing great success and has much more uh, uh, specific goals and what it's what it's trying to teach rather than uh, things of a general broad nature they're trying to help one acquire arts and skills um, there are a number of schools that read uh, fine books and this is a, a way of beginning that schools that have paid a lot of attention to content but I, I do think this is a place where no child left behind has hurt us considerably yeah. because of the teaching to the test and the focus on just the math and reading it's very hard to bring into the public schools any of these other things. I can't even get teachers to come to the summer to help learn these things because over the summer they're learning what it's going to take for them to improve their scores for their schools in on the No Child Left Behind uh, uh, tests so that they're in an effort to get a score. I think they're giving up a good part of what it means to be educated, and I'm afraid we're, we're losing some of that. Okay, in the back of the front section, the man blue shirt. Hi, my name is Mike Ortner. Um, I emphatically agree with everything you guys are saying. I um, I'm curious as to why it is that you think that uh, St. John's. You know, I, I agree with you. I love for my kids to go to St. John's, and uh, and they're only three and one. But I'm thinking ahead. But, <laughs> My my question is why is St. John's so? There's thousands or probably thousands of universities in the country. St. John's is almost alone from the research I've done. Thomas Aquinas in California is a great book school, and I think you might be the only two. How is it possible there are not more? And how and why aren't the elite universities copying what you're doing or doing? Do, Incorporating more aspects of this, it seems so intuitive to me that, that this is a great way to go. I'd love to hear your opinions on that. 
Well, there, well, Mr. Nelson is the man who knows most about this, so go ahead and start on that. Well, there are oases around the country, uh, and we always think a little bit of a good thing is better than none at all, so we're out there all the time trying to help people with various kinds of programs to promote things in the schools. And some of them, of course, have had programs for a century. Uh, Columbia University, it doesn't have a great books program in the maths and sciences, but the core uh, program in uh, philosophy, history, uh, literature is is strong and, and uh, old and, and uh, well-regarded. University of Chicago has had some deterioration in the program, but they still have a, a core. Uh, Notre Dame has one. Uh, St. Mary's College in Moraga, California has a strong program. University of Tennessee, Tennessee State, I guess, University has, has a program. I've seen them in Thomas More in little programs in many places. The hardest thing of all uh, for anyone to duplicate a St. John's College education is that it, I, th- I think it works for us because everybody's doing the same thing. If it's a department within a school, there's pressure to departmentalize, to get strong in your, in your particular field. Uh, here we're asking all of our faculty to teach across the entire curriculum. They've got to teach ancient Greek and quantum mechanics. They've got to teach modern French and uh, uh, Copernican uh, astronomy. They've got to teach Newton and Einstein, and they've got to teach the Bible and uh, Plato. So it's it's very difficult for people to want to give up their specialties to do all of that, and it's very hard if you're not doing that for a, a whole university, for, for a small group of people in a big university, to have enough critical mass to support one another. I think that's, that's a really hard problem for them. And you've got one other problem, which is the market. Uh, and namely that colleges that have strong requirements tend to get fewer applicants. I mean, that, that, that the, except for the very elite colleges uh, which have uh, five applicants for every position or more, a lot of colleges are scrambling to fill their places. They, they've, got, they've got to meet their costs. And to have a demanding core curriculum, uh, a lot of kids just don't want to do that. And their applications suffer. University of Chicago backed off of its core curriculum in part because of that reason. Yeah. Okay, uh, right over here. My name is Stephen Shore. Uh, I like both of what, what both of you had to say, but the one element that I felt was not given emphasis is while not denying that education is ultimately the responsibility of the individual student, to what extent is there a balance between curriculum and community? How can you create a community of learning that will further the educational goals of whatever curriculum is decided upon? I guess I don't, uh, I think that I need you to elaborate a little bit on the question. Uh. Have a curriculum that is admired and respected, but the learning process is no, in no small measure influenced by interactions with, with, between the students themselves. And I felt this is uh, one element of the talk, both of your talks that was not sufficiently emphasized. So how can you create a community of learning that will be a perfect uh, balance um, to the curriculum and see that people get as... It, individual students in their individuality get as much as they can from the curriculum. Well, this feeds into what I was saying earlier about you've got to be realistic about what what young people are looking for when they go to college, for example. 
I think that you interfere with the formation of that kind of atmosphere when you have kids who are taking uh, they say, oh, gee, I've got to check off the social science box. And so they think of social science courses as, as ones that they, they have to take this one, so they take the easy one. They're in the course. They aren't interested and so forth. I think that, that one of the first things that provides a community of learning which is synergetic and kids are feeding off each other is when they all want to be in the courses uh, for, because that's what they want to do. And that's what puts the limits on, on uh, I think, uh, a lot of the kinds of uh, – what would be good to do in an ideal world. Yeah, it's interesting. At St. John's, I've never heard anybody call it a college. When I, look, when I talk with the faculty and the students, they call it a community of learning. And what they mean by a community of learning is that all of them are doing the same thing at the same time so that the classroom is simply uh, an occasion for a certain kind of formal instruction and the conversation continues beyond. If you're at a big university where everybody is doing something different, you don't even know what your roommate is studying. Uh, whereas at a place like St. John's um, or another place which may have a strong core curriculum, you've got something common. And as soon as you've got something in common, people can bring that out into the dining halls, into the dormitories, into the playing fields, wherever it is. It's kind of exciting to see young people that probably have never had an opportunity to have an intelligent conversation with a stranger walk up to anybody in the college and begin to talk about a serious subject. And it's a very exciting thing. So I, I think to, a way to promote it is probably to create small spaces, small communities uh, within colleges and universities where people are doing common things and they're given a uh, common space to spend time together uh, to continue the conversation outside the classroom. And there, there are places that are trying that, you know, small uh, residential colleges within large universities. I don't know how well they're working yet, but I know that they're, they're out there. Okay, uh, right here. Um, I, President um, Nelson uh, alluded to the fact of teaching across the curriculum. What do you propose uh, that 18-year-olds do instead of trying to learn the difference between macro and microeconomics? <laughs> Wish I knew some economics to know the difference. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those things I haven't learned to teach across. Uh, uh, I can't give you an answer to that. Um, but I know that if you asked me when I was back at my desk, I'd find a way to get you an answer. So I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can do that. Uh, I can't answer that question either. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. Um, right in the back. Or, sorry, third row in. My name is Tom Frank. Uh, President Nelson, uh, uh, Dr. Murray, uh, I wonder if I could get you to at least uh, consider uh, on paper going back and being superintendent of schools at K through 12 and uh, telling me what you, you might do differently. Uh, uh, President Nelson, you talked about a, a community uh, in at St. John's. Um, uh, maybe that's one idea. And I've got two perspectives here. Uh, one of them is uh, I have uh, been fortunate to uh, hire uh, folks, it turns out, have, having an engineering degree, and they've come from overseas. And many folks come from overseas because of our fantastic university system in the United States. Uh, so uh, we know we've got a fantastic university system here. And from another perspective, 
Um, uh, there was a book uh, written called Enough, uh, uh, and I'm forgotten uh, offhand uh, the author, that African-American fellow, who uh, talked about a number of years ago uh, the best high schools in the District of Columbia were uh, had uh, African Americans, not whites. So, what can, what would you do? What could you do to change our K through 12 system uh, to make it comparable to our university system here? Well, uh, if let's let's talk specifically about DC schools or inner city schools, because that's uh, I think a different set of problems from uh, from schools in Frederick County, Maryland, that my kids went to. I think that in in the inner city schools. You start with the fundamentals, that every child who is trying to learn must be provided with an environment that is safe and orderly and allows them to learn. And right now, they don't have that basic. And you do that no matter what. You succeed at that. And if if that means throwing out 50% of the kids in the school, I don't think you'd have to do that. But if that's what it takes, that's what you do. That right now we are sacrificing the interests of kids we do know how to reach in the inner city schools because of the kids we don't know how to reach, and that has to stop. When it comes to the public schools otherwise, and more generally, um, change the curriculum. Just change the curriculum and, and in the ways that we were talking about earlier. A lot of the criticism of the public schools criticizes the teachers these days. And yes, did we have some teachers who were subpar in the public schools our kids went to? Yes, but we had some really wonderful teachers too. It was the curriculum that was uh, that was the problem. I shift that. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. And what I would do is look for the answers among the really good teachers. We all know a good teacher when we see one. Yeah. Um, I was in. Uh, I remember my tenth grade chemistry class particularly well. I was in New York State, so we had to. Uh, take the uh, uh, regents exams at the end of the year to pass them and I can understand why the superintendent of schools might be concerned that we were all needing to teach to that test so the instructor uh, said at the beginning of the year all of you are going to have to pass this test here's what it looks like we're not going to open it up when we get to five ten days before the end of the year we'll go and learn what you've got to do in the meantime we're going to do chemistry so we set that thing aside and we had a real blast and I loved chemistry I think I must, must have passed the exam. I don't remember even taking it uh, because I trusted him. And I, so I think some of this has to do with the teachers having some trust in themselves to, make, to help a class come alive and to have good material, good curriculum. Uh, the better the curriculum, the more exciting the student, excited the students are going to be. I find the more difficult the material, if it is truly uh, classy material, not just gobbledygook texts, uh, the more likely the students will become engaged. How we get a community out of that, I suspect it's hard. You probably do that in the course, in, in, in forming the classroom. Maybe you do it in having core groups stay together uh, of students who would be, take all their classes together in high school so that they can form study groups and, and work together. Uh, we find that that's something that works very well at the collegiate level, and I imagine that it might also in, in high school. Okay. Um, oh, right here. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm F.D. Gregos, and I'm one of the 18-year-olds that you keep on talking about. Um, I'm a freshman from American University who's actually dissatisfied with the level of education I'm getting, and I'm considering St. John's. Um, 
One of the things that I've noticed that hasn't changed from high school, which I find extremely disappointing, is the culture of BS, um, which is not the fulfillment of self that you can be talking about, but this fulfillment of making yourself um, something that's marketable. And I think the biggest problem in high school that neither of you two discussed is the idea that my I came from one of the best high schools in the country. I was very fortunate for that, uh, public high school. Um, and my high school's curriculum was geared towards preparing us for college and making us marketable for college. Um, and I have to say, as someone who was in a regular level math class and in APs and honors and my other subjects, the best kids at cheating and at cheating the system were all in the honors courses and in the AP courses. And what we were taught was really um, how to market ourselves um, in an untruthful manner. And I think the cause of that is the college application process and this idea that, as you've mentioned, that everyone has to apply to college. But even if everyone doesn't have to apply to college, there's still a fundamental problem with the way that we approach our entrance into um, higher-level education. And what do, what do both of you believe needs to be done to change that? Thank you. He's got, he's got an application process I think you'd like. Uh, well, we don't require any particular um, uh, success or scores in high school or class standing. We don't require the SAT or ACT, never have. Uh, we do require that you work uh, hard at writing an application because we want to know uh, why you're interested in St. John's College and what we might have to offer you. So we ask you to um, uh, describe uh, what a book that made a difference in your life. We ask you to uh, give an account of the education that you've had to date where you may provide just the critique you have here. Um, we ask you to tell us why you think St. John's College uh, can make a difference in your life, those kinds of things, and we will judge the quality of that application as uh, as uh, uh, as a measure of your desire, and the quality of desire we think is uh, what we're looking for uh, in having students come to the college. So I agree with you. I think there's a lot out there that should uh, that should change, and uh, I'd like I'd like to encourage us to get away from this uh, chasing some magic number. I think the ranking systems in the country are perpetuating a real evil that somehow the number one and two and three and four colleges are better than the number 150, 160, 170, as though all these schools can be ranked on a, on a single-scale system. We ought to be finding, at the college level and at the high school level, we ought to be looking at the question of fit. What, where does this student belong? Not where what school has the greatest reputation in the United States. Reputation for what? Nobody knows. Uh, what those numbers mean. So I think that's a serious problem. I, there's another problem you, you, you mentioned. I was asked uh, whether I might consider being on a panel a commission of some kind on the seamlessness of education from K through postdoctoral, and I, I told the person who was asking me I'd be happy to serve, but you need to know where I'm coming from. I think there should be no seamlessness whatsoever. I said the last thing we want is the mistakes at the college level and the forcing people into early specialization before they've had any opportunity at a core curriculum to bring that down into earlier schools. I, th I think we need, we need to have it go the other way around. We need to have a better, uh, broader uh, uh, education at a younger age and not have what's going on in college perpetuated on into the high schools, frankly. Uh, well, I should point out that if, if we have a, a new Johnny and he graduates, I'd like the Cato Institute to get some credit graduation day. Um, I think we have time for two or three more questions, so let me go way to the back first, way in the back with our hand up. 
Um, hi, this question is for Mr. Murray. I was wondering how liberals have reacted to your book. I mean, after all, they do run America's universities, and they seem to be on this constant quest for equality, whereas you seem to accept that there is inequality in people's abilities, and you say people need to take different paths. So I was wondering how they've reacted and if you've made any progress in convincing them that, in fact, people will not be able to achieve the, the levels that people at the highest level of intelligence will be able to get to. Uh, unfortunately, the book appeared at the same time that we had the weirdest slate of presidential candidates in American history uh, go into action and when the economy collapsed. And so it's been kind of hard to get reaction from uh, from people. I, I wouldn't – I think that they, they – in, in discussions, I get the same kind of criticisms that you uh, would predict. But I want to emphasize that what I call educational romanticism – uh, this notion that, well, kids can be anything they want to be if they try hard enough, is really just as much a conservative uh, uh, problem as it is a liberal one. I mean, this is what gave us no child left behind, uh, th this, uh, this, this refusal to discuss uh, realistically the ways in which kids differ in their ability to do the things that uh, schools teach or learn the things that schools teach. And the review of the book in the Wall Street Journal by uh, Ben Wildovsky was classic educational romanticism, where he's upset that, that I'm shortchanging kids by by saying that not everybody can go to college, and that. So I think that the it would be an interesting PhD dissertation to explain why it is that over the last forty years the uh, the, the the notion that kids differ in their abilities has become so taboo, uh, and and it's been become so controversial to say that half of the children below average, but it has become so every bit as much on the right as on the left. Um, I'll say, speak to that a little, too. I, I think it was yesterday or the day before Margaret Spellings was interviewed uh, and uh, was promoting the good of No Child Left Behind. And she made an interesting observation, and that is that it was the people on the far right and the far left who were joining hands on this issue. Um, I suspect that the same thing might happen with respect to this sort of thing. I think of myself as a, as a classic liberal, frankly. Uh, it may not sound like it, but uh, I've come out of that tradition and always have. Um, I think that, for me, the problem is not that all people can achieve the same thing. It's that we can't know, with respect to any individual human being, what that particular human being can achieve. And the last thing I'd want to do is put something like a very good idea that's in this book into the hands of a bureaucrat who will then take it someplace that Mr. Murray doesn't have any intention of, yeah. of, of taking it and saying that means we've got to have all, all of our students take their 11s like they do in England and suddenly they're going to be put into a track. That same student, by the way, uh, that same son of mine uh, that I told the story about with the you know, D-plus average in school um, is now um, uh, applying to medical school and is doing pretty well. Another one, I had two in special ed classes. We're clearly unable to do the material. I held two of my sons back a grade. Clearly, I thought they were below average. And they all grew at very different, at, at different stages. If they hadn't been given some kind of freedom in their lives to find themselves at different ages and different stages, I would have been... I would have felt I would have cut the lives, their lives could, short. Could, could I add on to this? Because I don't want people to leave the room under a misapprehension. I don't want to put kids into bins either. 
Uh, and, and nor have you said I do. But I want to, what I want is a system that, that exposes kids in elementary and secondary school to all kinds of things and does it with a kind of equality of dignity associated with them. Uh, I think that everybody, including the brainy nerds, ought to have to take shop class in eighth grade. Uh, I think they ought, to, they ought to know what that's like. Uh, similarly, I want to have kids exposed to uh, academic material until we find out whether that's something that they want to go with or not. If you have a youngster who doesn't test that well and who wants to go into an AP course, I don't think you exclude him because his test scores aren't high enough. You simply tell that youngster, here's what it's going to require, and we aren't going to modify the grading or the teaching uh, to, to accommodate you. And let him try. And above all, I want to encourage kids not to go straight to college out of high school, no matter what their SATs are. Take a year off. Take two years off. Go out and support yourself. You can't live with your father and mother. You've got to go out and support yourself. Take, take time off between college and graduate school, for heaven's sakes. Learn about the world and give yourself the maximum opportunity. And this should be the goal of education. The goal of education should be to come to adulthood and learn about something that you love to do and learn how to do it well. And whether that is becoming a master cabinet maker or a uh, brain surgeon uh, is, is going to differ across individuals. Okay, I think we have time for two more questions right there. Dan Griswold with the Cato Institute, and, and Mr. Murray, I have a question for you. It's a practical question from the, the father of a college freshman. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on, on which courses of study are, are justified by four years at a college and which are the, the least justified? And then a, a policy question, how can we change the system so that students and, more importantly, their parents aren't wasting money on these four-year degrees that aren't, aren't justified by the time and expense? I have a son who is a freshman at college, oh, no, sophomore this year, and I'm facing exactly the same problem you are. And what I do is I jawbone him, uh, and you know how much good that is with 19-year-olds. But still, I try. It's better to try than not to try. And, and I say to him the same things I say in the book, you know, you, you, need, to have, you need to acquire rigor in verbal expression. And to acquire rigor and verbal expression, you need to study literature and you need to have courses that are going to force you to write coherent, uh, thoughtful essays uh, in which you must exhibit that. You need to learn uh, rigor in, in making judgments. And that means you've got to take a course in statistics and probability because you cannot read today's newspaper. You cannot have an opinion about secondhand smoke or global warming unless you understand probabilistic statements. Uh, you need, above all, I think, to use college uh, to, th- to tap into the wisdom of homo sapiens on the great issues of virtue and the good, good with a capital G. Uh, so you've got to take philosophy, and you've got to take literature, the kind of literature which not only has literary merit but has merit in terms of exposing you to these, these ideas. The reason you study the great books at St. John's or the reason you should study them in college is not so you can tick off the I've read Plato uh, box. It is because Plato had really, really interesting things to say about the meaning of a human life. And college is the time when you should be exposed to this. 
I, got, I just got done earlier saying you shouldn't force kids to do this. I got done saying we've got to quit using college uh, uh, in, in a way which puts kids into these kinds of constraints. But I'm also saying for my own children, I will do my damnedest to encourage them to acquire a classic liberal education, dealing with these great questions of what does it mean to leave, live a good human life. Uh, and last one right behind you. I'm one of the recipients, fortunate recipients of a, an excellent liberal education, including a master's degree from St. John's College. I spent most of my 20s in higher education. But looking back at my education, some of the most profound learning experiences I had was as a result of taking classes with people from backgrounds wildly different from mine. Just reading the book of Job with someone who had lost a child or being in a classroom with someone who had just gotten out of prison. And I'm, I'm wondering, is there something, I, much of what you've said I agree with, but I wonder if there's something that we might lose by channeling people in, with different levels of ability into different paths. And perhaps there's something that we currently have with interactions Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm not illustrating that great in a liberal education at the moment, but, but the way in which currently we have people interacting who are going to end up in different places in their lives. And is there a way in which we'd be the poor if our elites did not have regular contact with people who would be craftsmen or accountants or, you know, what I, have I agree with I, you. I, I, I was... Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, my two elder children went to uh, National Cathedral School in Washington, one of the fanciest of the private schools. My two younger children went to Valley Elementary and Brunswick High, which is a working-class farming community uh, out in rural Maryland, uh, western Maryland. And the reason for that difference is precisely what you just said. I didn't want my kids, my younger kids, to grow up only knowing other people with six-figure incomes and graduate degrees and who'd all lived in McLean or, or Bethesda or whatever. In one sense, what they got out of Brunswick uh, High School and that school system was exactly what I wanted uh, in that my daughter's closest friend uh, was the daughter uh, of a um, guy who drove a bread truck. It's also true that my daughter's closest friend whose father drove the bread truck probably has an IQ of about 135. She was really, really smart. And you hang out with the kids who, who are like you in terms of your intellectual interests. But at least we can expose our children to the, the wide variety of people that there are out there. Okay? So I'm trying to, I tried to do exactly what you just said. My son hated it because he couldn't find anybody that was interested in the same things he was uh, in that environment. And I, I've... Well, just simply say to any parent out there, I think it's worth the effort to try to do as much as you can to expose your children to the whole range of other Americans, that there is a real problem of segregation within this society in which you have hothouse kids who've never been exposed to that, but you also have to be realistic about the sense in which kids self-select with others who share their same interests, and a certain amount of segregation is going to occur no matter what. And in that case, all we can do is make sure that at least in the educational system, we have done our best to let 
keep them from becoming self-satisfied. And if that sounds like half a dozen different things going off at different angles at the same time, that's just the reality of the situation, I'm afraid, with that parents face. Yeah, I, I guess I agree with the point you're making. I learn all the time from people um, that would be identified by many others as in the uh, uh, lower half, people who haven't finished high school. Uh, we have our own set of seminars within the community of our college, uh, and I sit there reading a slice of Faulkner with our uh, staff, and I, I realize suddenly that they're seeing things about this book that I've never never seen before, and they have a sense of uh, honor or respect uh, for a text that is uh, rather wonderful to see because they haven't been exposed to as many of them. I think it's very healthy for us to have this around and among because there are so many good things that people can grab onto as well as the experiences that students uh, can get from uh, learning from the other, so to speak. Well, that's all the time we have for questions. I want to thank Dr. Murray and Mr. Nelson uh, for, for being here today. Um, some important notes. There is food and reception up in the Winter Garden. Uh, Dr. Murray will be signing uh, copies of his book there. And if you want more about uh, going to college, who should, who shouldn't, how do we decide, if you go to Cato Unbound on the Internet, there's a now a discussion started by Dr. Murray. There will be three people responding, which should also be very interesting. And with that, thank you all for coming, and we'll see you in the Winter Garden.